0: Please join me in a spirit of prayer. Blessed God, lover of souls, giver of all good gifts, we thank you for the example of your servant, Martin. May he be for us a example of what grace may do in transforming our lives and setting us on new paths for your name's sake, so that we may live with detachment in this world and attachment to your kingdom. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Good morning, St. Martins. Good morning. So I have started a Thursday morning Bible study at Cathedral Village, which I am enjoying tremendously. We have a large number and growing number of members at Cathedral Village. And so I gathered there with some of our members, some other people from Cathedral Village, and we did this gospel this week as a group. The blessed and wonderful Barbara Baumgartner read it out loud for the group. She read it quite well, put it down, looked at the table, and said, Wow. <laughs> and then next to her, Cookie Green piped up and said, You know, Jarrett, this was the first gospel I ever heard on coming to St. Martin's. And I knew then I might never be able to be a Christian. <laughs> And then at 8 o'clock this morning, someone said to me, a few years ago I heard this gospel and I was a Buddhist for the next two years. (laughs) So, this gospel has the same effect on Jesus' immediate audience as it has on us today. Who then will be saved? It's a troubling passage. It's a passage that we would like to turn away from and rationalize and make a little easier than it probably is. Because in it, Jesus is being as provocative as Jesus gets. He's being as bold and total in his claims as he can be. And he doesn't just shock the rich man. The rich man is not the only shocked person in this story. He does go away grieving and sad about his, um, what's been asked from him because he's very attached to his wealth. But the crowd surrounding and overhearing this exchange are equally shocked. They're the ones who say, then who can be saved? And clearly his disciples, who are also part of the crowd, are shocked because all of a sudden they're really worried. Well, we've given up everything. Are we going to be okay? So not in this story, there's not only a word to the rich, to the wealthy, there's a word to all of us. There's something deeply, deeply challenging going on here in what Jesus is saying. And part of it is about the impossibility, the impossibility of us writing our relationship, writing our relationship with God on our own merits, by our own devices, through our own efforts. Jesus is using hyperbole for sure, extreme language, an image that is clearly impossible to put us up against a self-examination where we say, yup, relying on myself alone, I cannot establish the fulsome relationship with God that God makes for me by grace. There's a sermon here about salvation through grace by faith. We are up against the impossibility in ourselves of claiming eternal life and our deep dependence on God to invite us in through God's power, through God's grace and love to work with us to the place of grace and everlasting life. We all need to confront that moment of powerlessness. We need to confront that moment of I can't, but God can That's a pivotal moment in many of our spiritual lives when we realize so much of my spiritual repertoire is about me trying to flatter my way into God's graces. That's where the rich man starts. Good teacher, he says. And we wonder why Jesus kind of, wow, puts him right in his place. Because he's flattering him. He's ingratiating himself. It's an example of how not to approach God. I'm so good. Pay some attention to me. And then Jesus goes back at him with these odd set of the 10 commandments. If you count them, there's not 10 in there. It's a weird set. It's the most like kind of conventional part of the 10 commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Okay, got it. And this is what Jesus asks as he've done. And what's interestingly missing are the first two commandments. Have no other God besides me and make no idols, no substitute gods. Love the Lord, your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and make no substitute gods. And what I think Jesus is trying to get at with the wealthy man and with the crowd and with all of us is starting with that commandment. Where do your loyalties belong? Where is your ultimate loyalty? Where is your ultimate allegiance? What is your ultimate priority? And how does that rearrange every other priority? And that puts all of us in a place of tension. Not just with relationship to our resources, our money, but in relationship to all other parts of our life. And much like you... I am much more comfortable and relaxed in this world when I have enough money in the bank. So this story is very challenging to me. Does it, is it asking me to examine my comfort that is caused by that bank account? Is it asking me to wonder why I don't depend on God more and not be so fixated on that bottom line? This is an intrusive word of grace Jesus is delivering here that enters into all of our relationships of allegiance and dependence and asks us to examine them. And not just the rich man, that whole crowd and the disciples all around, because you have to ask yourself to what end is Jesus putting this challenge out there to what end is Jesus being so provocative? Why is it undermining and shaking up the crowd so much? And I think it's this. I think Jesus is challenging a fundamentally accepted theology behind the culture of his time. He was doing this with the Beatitudes last week. And he's doing it again this week with the eye of the needle passage. At that time and at this time, there was a fair amount of people... Who interpreted scripture to say, if you are prosperous and wealthy, you are especially favored by God. If you are prosperous and wealthy, God has shown you special favor, special blessing. And in fact, it's a sign of a higher status in God's regard. So the poor are cursed by God clearly because they're poor. And then the rich are exalted by God because they're good this becomes a mental spiritual hierarchy that's operating at that time. and It's operating at this time too. uh, look up the prosperity gospel when you get home. I mean, we could run St. Martin's that way if you'd like, but I don't want to, because <laughs> I don't think it accords with the teachings of Jesus. Call me crazy, but it is a major theme. Check out Kanye West's new gospel album. It's full of the prosperity gospel. One of the kids in the kitchen last night is like, Jared, could you get the choir to sing from the new Kanye West album? (laughs) (laughs) For many reasons. I said, no, for many reasons, for my part, mostly theological. And then there's fighting with the choir about it. So, um, (laughs) The prosperity gospel is this thing, and I think Jesus is working against it and trying to say, you know what? God is blessing us both in our gains and our losses. God blesses us both in the gain and the loss, in the up and the down, in the consolation and the desolation. God is surrounding us with God's love and blessing through all the rhythms of life. God is not adding an extra layer of suffering to us because we're not prospering, but rather God's abundance surrounds poor and rich alike. In both gain and loss, God is present with God's blessing. And in this way, through the grace of Jesus, he's trying to release the rich man, the crowd of people and the disciples from a toxic story and replacing it with a new narrative that will prepare them for the good news that new life comes through death, that what is impossible for us is possible for God. What we cannot find in ourselves, God will supply so that we can get to that eternal life of relationship with God. This journey transforms us, but this journey begins with that grace, that gift, not our striving. I read a really fascinating story about Franz Kafka. So I'm gonna go from St. Martin for Jesus to Franz Kafka. Hold on for a second. Franz Kafka was taking a walk in a park in Berlin near the end of his life. And he came upon a little girl who'd lost her uh, doll, lost her toy doll. And Kafka saw that the girl was upset. She was crying and distraught. So he joined her in the search for this doll through the underbrush, through all the places she'd been playing that day. Where is the doll? Where is the doll? And as the sun started to go down, they realized they weren't gonna find the doll that day. So Kafka made a promise to the girl. He said, I'll join you here tomorrow to look again. And he did. He came back to the park, found the girl at that place and they began their search again. Worried that they wouldn't find the doll the second time, Kafka had prepared a letter that he brought for the girl. And once they were frustrated and tired, they sat down on a bench and Kafka pulled out the letter and he said, Oh, look, your doll wrote you a letter. And the doll said in the letter... Dear friend, I'm sorry that you are missing me. I've gone on a trip. I'm traveling. I want to see the world. And I promise to write you letters to tell you all about the places I've been. So day after day, Kafka met the little girl and had another letter for her about all the places that this doll was traveling. Until finally, one day, Kafka appears in the, Park, carrying a doll. And of course, the doll doesn't look like the original doll. But he gives it to the little girl and he says, look, she's back. And the girl protests, but this is not the same doll. And Kafka says, well, she has a letter about that. Read the letter. And the letter says, I'm so glad to be back with you. I've been traveling far and wide. I know I don't look the same, but my travels have changed me. I've been transformed by what I've seen. And the girl went away happy. Years later, the same girl found the doll again in her possessions, pulled it out, took a look, and found another note tucked away in one of the joints of the baby doll's arms. Pulling out the note, she read it. Kafka had left one more note with the doll. And it said... Please know this, that in this life, you will lose many of the things that you most love. But be open that they will come back in new and delightful ways. The loss and the gain, the gain and the loss, the letting go and the finding the moving by grace on the journey that changes us through loss and finding, gaining and losing. This is God's story for us. This is the story God lays out for us to join. And it is a gift. Our saint, St. Martin, he is our model. Just a little bit of grace, just a little bit of learning about this strange teacher From Israel, Jesus had infected him with enough compassion that he cut that cloak in half. He started his journey by cutting that cloak in half, by starting to relinquish, by starting to let letting go. And then the grace poured in in that dream of the beggar who was Christ. And the grace flowed into such a degree that it wasn't just the cloak he let go of, it was the armor It was the armor and status of a Roman soldier and citizen that fell away in his full embrace of a life changed, a life transformed, a life given to Christ. He is our model of finding and losing, gaining and losing on our way into a deeper walk with Christ as the one who supplies, Christ the one we depend on. Christ, the one who finds us the way. Let us be blessed that the relinquishing and the adding, the gaining and the losing, the dying and the rising, they are our story by grace. Amen.